two things before we start. Um, as a pastor, you have to know that sometimes it's very sobering to do what you do. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles out and just turn to Revelation chapter 4. Because when anyone prays, they cannot pray in their own name. They must pray in the name that is above every other name. They must be able to pray from a righteousness position that is fully accepted by God. And that name is the name of Jesus alone. So when we stand before him and we plead for whatever it is that we're going through and we're asking God the Father to answer our prayers, when we mention the name of his son, his ear goes like this and he listens. We don't come on our own strength. We don't come on our own righteousness. Everything we have has been imparted to us by Jesus. We come in his name. There is a scripture that says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Revelation chapter 4 shows us what that moment is like when you transition from an earthly perspective to a heavenly perspective. The Apostle John is elderly now. He's on the Isle of Patmos. It's a prison colony, and he is surrounded by barrenness, rocks, and loneliness. But he's there for a divine purpose. And God suddenly touches his heart. And it says in verse 1 in Revelation 4, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Seraphina walked through those doors many times, sat in the seat, worshiped the Lord. But this week, she stepped through another door, a door that was promised to her, a door that talks about everlasting life. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. I'm going to show you what's going to take place after. At once, I was in the Spirit. When you're in the Spirit, everything changes. Your perspective changes. Your thoughts change. Your heart changes. And in just that moment, as her eyes closed here, they opened there. And everything that Jesus did on the cross to assure her salvation was completed. And John says, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. What's the first thing that she saw when she entered into heaven? She saw him who sits on the throne. You know, there's lots of books about people who go to heaven and they talk about fluorescent grass and blue this and purple that. But John says, I saw him. I saw the one that I loved. I saw the one that I served. 
I saw the one that has captured my heart. Had the appearance of Jasper and Carlelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments. That's the righteousness that God gives to us as those who follow him and love him and serve him. And when Seraphina stepped into glory and the white robe was given to her, she joined that great assembly in, in heaven. They had golden crowns on their head. What are you going to do with the golden crowns that you have on your head? When you see him, you will place that crown at his feet and say, Jesus, everything you did in and through my life rightfully belongs to you. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We haven't really fully understood who the God that we serve really is. But there will come a point that every blinder will be taken off our eyes. That we will be able to stand before him and know him as he knows us intimately. And John experiences that, writes about it, helps us grasp it. And now we get what Scripture says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Seraphina stood before the Lord. Linda, one of the Bible school students, stands before the Lord. And yet they all sat here. And one day you will no longer be sitting here. One day you will have transitioned to be with the Lord. And when you do that, you're not going to say, oh, Pastor B, Re Revelation 4 was really great. <laughs> you're going to be consumed by his presence, his holiness, his love, his faithfulness, his graciousness, his kindness. And for all eternity, you're going to praise him and say, Lord, thank you for calling me into your presence. Thank you for making me part of your forever family. What a hope we have. You and I have a hope that in the culture, that hope is not there. You see it every single day. People put their trust in everything else but the Lord. So I want to encourage you as we do the series on countercultural mission, the essence of it is let's be like Jesus everywhere we go. That will sum up the whole series, that we become like him in all we do. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about a man by the name of David, who in his life and in his journey his heart keeps shifting towards God. But how many know he's got some chapters in his life that are not very pleasant? I remember telling my parents when I was a 
young man in my late teens. I don't want to live here anymore, and if you don't let me go, I'm going to commit suicide. You know you can be really stupid at points of your life. And now I look back on it. I left the house. I started to travel around the world, and I never sent a card. I never contacted my parents until a year and a bit later when I needed money. When I became a believer, I thought, oh, how selfish. How self-absorbed was I. How cruel to say that to my mom and my dad. Ask them for forgiveness and ask them to pray for me and to forgive me. I want you to know there are seasons of your life and my life that are not pleasant. And you don't want anyone reading that portion of your life. Because then you'll hear the comment, how could they be a Christian? We'll find out when we look at David's life. And what are the challenges as a disciple and follower of Jesus? As we've gone through our year of listening and loving and being led, there's a tricky part in the midst of it all about our faithfulness and our image that we present to others. Countercultural mission is each follower of Christ, serving as a faithful presence. Everybody say presence. A faithful presence by trusting in God's power and living differently from cultural norms. Because you and I have the gift of free will, we live in a world that offers us all kinds of ways to live our life, all kinds. And somewhere in the midst of it all, we have to be discerning to say, is that how I want to live my life? And that's where God has you and has me as salt in his shaker that when the services are over throughout the city and all the churches empty back into the culture, he shakes his salt shaker over the community. And you and I have the opportunity to present a way to live your life. And we become the example to others of how you live that life. And how many know we don't live it perfectly? So one of the first things we did is we looked at Moses' life and how he turned to the burning bush and stepped into his calling. Last week we exposed the statement that often is said but isn't true that there is no way after seeing God that people would still reject him. The Pharisees did when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They said to themselves, we got to kill this man. And then the most intimate of disciples, Judas, spent 30,000 hours with Jesus. Think of it. Walked with him, talked with him. They slept together in the gatherings that they had every single night as a group, and he listened to every conversation. He watched everything that Jesus did. And when that moment came for Jesus to be betrayed, he turned Jesus over to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. It wasn't Jesus that was the treasure of his heart. It was simply mammon. Got to be careful what captures your heart. And so we looked at that, and today we want to clear up a, a central misunderstanding 
and provide hope. Everybody say hope. Hope for each and every one of us. The one thing we all share is that none of us will live on mission for God perfectly. So scripture reminds us about King David. In Acts chapter 13, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Well, the misconception is, how can David get that kind of a testimony from God when we know portions of his life where he was an adulterer, where he was a murderer, where he was deceitful, where he manipulated. There were so many things going on in David's life, but it doesn't say that David was a man with God's heart. It says David was a man after God's heart. And there's a big difference. Reflecting God's heart perfectly is a designation that's reserved for Jesus alone. Amen? When you see me, Jesus said, you see the Father. When you hear me, you hear the Father. The works that I do, the Father does in and through me. So Jesus alone, in the midst of culture, reflects who God is perfectly. For those of you who've ever studied the Old Testament, there is a tabernacle in the wilderness where God took Moses and began to teach him about who God was and who Moses was and what sin was like and how you could approach God. And they erected a tabernacle in the wilderness and the entrance to the tabernacle was called the way. The entrance to the holy place was called the truth. And the holy of holies was called what? The life. And you don't get to life unless you go past the one gate that ushers you in to the presence of the Father in the holy of holies. You don't. So how does David live differently as one after God's own heart? Imperfectly, but always eventually, David keeps shifting his heart and his mind and his life towards God. To see how he does this, there's a famous valley in Israel called the Valley of Elah. And those of you that are coming on the Israel trip, either in October or in April, we go to the Valley of Elah. And we look at it and we say to ourselves, wow, God, you did all that right here. It's a famous moment in the life of David where he has an encounter with a giant by the name of Goliath. It's found in 1 Samuel 17. By the time little David arrives on the scene, Goliath has been taunting Israel for 40 days in this little valley. He's got to overcome some things to be able to stand there with confidence. How many know all of us have had things said about us and done to us in our lifetime that can become an anchor that holds us to it and we can't get past it? And David's going to be in the same position as Joseph was centuries earlier. David was profoundly discouraged by his own family. 
You're the least of us. You're just little shepherd boy. Get out in the field and get away from us. You won't even be chosen to do anything important. He was disqualified because he's young. How many of you are young and you feel, well, I'm too young? You're never too young. If your heart is right before God, you're never too young. And he was mocked as being only a shepherd. What are you trying to say to Goliath? What are you trying to do to fight this giant? You're just taking care of sheep. That's man's view of David's life. God's view is very different. And what God does inside David's heart is like Popeye with spinach. I know some of you won't know what I've just said. But others of you with gray hair will know exactly what I've said. King Saul says, well, if you're going to go out to fight the giant, I'm going to give you my armor. David puts the armor on and goes, nope. You cannot fight in anybody else's armor. You can only fight him with your own armor. And David, overcoming discouragement, overcoming disqualification, overcoming the mocking, puts his hand on his side and he's got a sling. And he remembers how he has used that sling as a shepherd boy to get rid of the foxes and get rid of the bears and get rid of those predators that would come after the sheep. David has courage in his heart. I love what some preachers say. He picked up five stones and put them in his bag. Why five? Well, because Goliath had some brothers. And other preachers have said because J-E-S-U-S. -S, he wanted Jesus to do what only Jesus could do. So David's got courage, but that's not what makes David a man after God's heart. Let me read it from 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 37. David said to King Saul, remember, little shepherd boy talking to the king. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Just so you know, I've asked the ushers to release a couple of mice just in the sanctuary. So if you see one run by you, we'll see what kind of courage you have. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth, and he arose against me. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Whoa. That's some shepherd boy. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised or this man who is not a part of the covenant shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. What do you think Saul's eyes were like at that moment? Because all of Israel was dependent on slaying this giant. And Saul has to have courage in his heart as well to let David do what David is about to do. All his men are frightened. They're terrified. And they're soldiers. They're trained. And David's a shepherd boy. 
But in his shepherding, God has trained him up. And he knows how to take care of enemies. And he's confident that God will see him through and that Goliath will come tumbling down. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Has he done it yet? Nope. What's he doing? Making a declaration of faith. Making a declaration of confidence in the God that he serves. Standing up in the midst of a culture and saying, I follow the Lord and he's going to deliver me, deliver you into my hands. Think about it. Saul said to David, well, go and the Lord be with you. So those after God's own heart have the utmost confidence in God himself. Let me encourage you. You can face every fear. It doesn't matter what it is. You can face every fear in the name of the Lord, providing you have an intimate relationship with him and that you have watched him in and through your life accomplish victory after victory after victory, and even in the midst of defeats, to restore you, to give you hope again, and to cause you to prosper. When you've had a journey in God where you've got your bumps and your bruises, and you know that you know deep in your heart that your confidence is in him, and what you are doing in his name, he is going to answer the cry of your heart. Many of the Psalms, I want you to turn to Psalm 119 with me for a moment. There's many Psalms. When you go home, you can read from Psalm uh, 51, 52, those kind of Psalms, and really see what it is that uh, David went through. But Psalm 119 one of those psalms, beginning at verse 9, where David can say, how can a young man keep his way pure? Then he answers, by guarding it according to your word. Everybody say your word. Your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Not a portion of it. But at this point, David, everything in David, it's his whole heart seeking the Lord. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. And with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. David is making known to those listening what's going on in his heart his confidence in God, his assurance that God is going to do what only God can do. And David, who has a heart after God, requires all of us, through his example, to place our confidence in God out of a living relationship with him and with his word. Why would God even take the time 
over 1,400 years in the lives of 40 different authors, why would he take the time to write down his will for our lives? Because he knew there would come a day where the Bible, the Word of God, would be available to the whole of creation. And you'd have a testimony of God at work in the hearts and lives of men and women through history, and you would see yourself in their lives. And you'd have the witness of the faithfulness of God and all that he has done. David has to deal sometimes with an external giant, and he does, and it opens favor for him, and he's able to eventually become a king. But David has a problem as well. There's an internal Goliath that he hasn't dealt with yet. And when you have an internal Goliath, you're going to find out that temptation is going to come your way, and the Goliath can be anything that captures your heart. When David is tempted with Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop, and we'll show you when you're in Jerusalem what it's like to stand on some locations in the city of David and look at the houses that are below and the rooftops, that's where she was bathing. He should have been with his soldiers out at battle. Instead, he's alone in the temple. He's alone. And as he's alone, the devil starts to work on him. And lust begins to burn in his heart towards Bathsheba. That's an internal Goliath. What's it like when you have this massive a victory on the outside, and then you are crushed on the inside by something that you're not prepared to deal with. So he deceives his men. They go get Bathsheba. They bring her to him. He's the king, and the king's word is final, and he sleeps with her. He commits adultery with her because she is married to another man. And that man is on the front line serving David. And David sins, covers his sin, and suddenly we realize that his heart is not after God at this moment. But from love, God sends to David a prophet by the name of Nathan. Second Samuel says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And the prophet comes and he tells a story, a little parable. <clears throat> sometimes, it's okay, babe. sometimes God uses a narrative that exposes your heart. A story that you hear, something that you read in the word. And God uses it to lift the lid off your heart and expose it. So Nathan tells a parable of a rich man who has everything you could think of and a poor man who has one little lamb. And somebody comes to visit, and the king doesn't want to take from his own flock, so he takes what belongs to the poor man and offers it to the guest in his house. 
And David's enraged when he hears this. How could he? How dare he? Hmm. And Nathan points at him and says, you're the man. Now, don't go pointing at people <laughs> unless God has told you to. But Nathan points his finger at him. And this is what he says in 2 Samuel 12. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? So in countercultural mission, when we're seeking to represent Jesus and we go against his word, what are we doing? We're despising his word. We're presenting another way. And that road will lead nowhere. You've despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight, David. David's the king. He could have Nathan killed. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife, his wife to be your wife, and had killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Wow. Heavy duty. The deception of David's heart. All the things that David had to do to manipulate and to lie to the soldiers and to get Bathsheba to come to the palace. And she comes to the palace and then he takes advantage of her. Anytime you're in a place of authority, anytime you stand in a place of authority, you must never abuse that place of authority by exercising authority over others simply to get your own way. That's exactly what David does. So we're looking at, I found a man after God's own heart, and it's like, whoa, Lord, this chapter in David's life is horrendous. <clears throat> what about the chapters in your life and my life? There's some chapters in my life I wouldn't want anybody to read. How many know God knows about those chapters? And the same for you. C.S. Lewis says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. So David has a moment where he has to decide to be open and transparent and confess his sin before God. And we know what happens. He does. He opens his heart. He weeps before the Lord. He fasts before the Lord. Psalm 51 is an introduction to the ranting of David's heart. I've sinned against you, O God, and you alone. And yet look at the damage that he's done in the lives of so many people. Putting Uriah on the front line so he'll get killed so that it opens a way for David to marry Bathsheba. And in the eyes of the people, that's all right. In the eyes of God, it's wrong. Countercultural mission is your relationship to God. He's the one that puts his finger on your heart when you step out of line. And if your heart is a heart after God, you will do like David did when Nathan pointed the finger at him. You will choose to repent because you understand the free will, the gift that God has given to you, that you want your heart to pant after God. 
Circumstances have their effect, but our ability to choose overrides circumstances. Thy will be done in my life, Lord, should be the posture of our heart every single day. When it comes time to confront Goliath, David has confidence in God. Thy will be done, Lord. But when caught, when the time came for David to be confronted and he realized <clears throat> the pain that he had caused, the sin that he had committed, he repented before God and he displays now the same trusted confidence in God who's calling out his sin. And he's able to bow before the Lord and seek repentance. David says to Nathan in 2 Samuel, I have sinned against the Lord. So when you go home, please read Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and I think both of those will be a blessing to you. Let me finish. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Something really beautiful about our service to God and all that we go through in our lifetime. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 25. Here's King David. Here's a testimony of King David. He certainly has gone through a lot in his life. But we began by saying he's a man after God's own heart. And David says, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. So no matter what David went through, whether it was an external Goliath, he had hope that God would deliver him into his hand, and whether it was an internal Goliath that defeated him again and again, he was able to say, my hope is in God. My trust is in God, and I'm going to turn my face to him. I'm going to turn my heart to him, and when I do that, repentance is going to flow out of my heart, and the God that I put my trust and my hope in is going to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Please don't allow little sins to capture your heart. Deal with them instantly. When Holy Spirit is at work inside of you and you veer to the left or veer to the right, the signal is going to go off inside of you. I drive a little Subaru, and whenever I cross the line without signaling, I get a beep, beep, beep. And my grandchildren say, Grandpa, what's that beep, beep, beep? Nothing. Signal next time. People after God's own heart have all kinds of circumstances in their life. But their confidence is not in themselves. Their confidence is in God. Sometimes we face defeats at the hands of others. Sometimes because of their profound failures, their confidence isn't in developing their character. It's un unhinging. And they do things to people, and sometimes we have that in our life. Somebody crosses our path, and John Mas Maxwell used to call it kicking the cat. They got all kinds of issues going on in their life during the day and with their boss, with their coworkers, with traffic, with all of that. And when they come home and the cat walks in front and they kick the cat, what's the cat got to do with it? Nothing. 
So you and I are recipients sometimes of what other people are going through in their life, and it's not about us, it's about them, but our response is important. In the finished work of the cross, we have to trust that God will strengthen us no matter what. You will not live on mission perfectly. David didn't. You won't. Yet God will call you to have a heart after him. He will call you to live a life where your confidence comes from God, who is not merely that you can make a difference in the world, but that the difference maker is at work in your world, and he is moving in and through your life every single day. Confidence in Christ will give you profound courage to face the giants in the world and to face the giants that are going on in your heart and life and in your family. Let's finish with Romans 5. And if you have your communion emblems, I want you to take them in your hand at this moment. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Jesus comes to the end of his ministry. He gathers his disciples into an upper room. He has a Passover meal with them, and he begins to instruct them on what is going to take place. And he lifts a cup up after having bread that he has broken. He lifts a cup up, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Now, they will understand through history as Jews, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. They will understand that the life is in the blood. They will understand that covenant relationship is vital for them to experience the life that God wants them to live. And that's why Jesus says, it's a new covenant that I'm going to give you. My body will be broken and my blood will be shed. So I want you to eat it and I want you to drink from the cup. And as you do, I want you to remember me. So as you hold the cup in your hand, I want to read this scripture over you, and in your heart of hearts, I want you to respond to God's word. And whenever you're ready, just peel the top off, take the bread and partake. Whenever you're ready, drink the cup. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you today, do you have peace with him? Through him, the scripture reminds us, if I can get it, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. None of us get through life unscathed. Endurance produces character, and that's what God's looking for in countercultural mission, the character of his son to come through in our lives. And character produces hope. I'm grateful today 
that every time Serafina sat in one of these seats and raised her hands and opened her heart in prayer, that she had a hope beyond life. She had a hope in a Savior by the name of Jesus Christ. And now she is the recipient of all of the promises that are yes and amen in Christ. And she stands in his presence, in his glory. And if she could say anything to us today, she would say, stay faithful, keep serving, keep moving forward. And remember, when you place your trust in Jesus, he never disappoints. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so, Father, we thank you that our trust is in you. We thank you, Lord, that as we celebrate communion together, as we honor the life and the memory of Serafina, and that this service is dedicated to her memory, we thank you, Lord, for her heart, which was like David's. She was a woman with a heart after God. Blessed her husband, blessed her children, blessed her in-laws. She just blessed her grandkids. She just blessed her friends. She blessed us. And now she is receiving the reward of her relationship with Jesus. And so, Father, thank you for all that you're doing in our hearts and in our lives today. We honor you and we seek to walk it out in countercultural mission. In Jesus' name. Amen.